This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference, is less than a month away. It's a chance for leaders from around the world to meet and work out how countries can tackle the climate crisis. One of the issues that's very likely to come up is how we can take carbon that's already been emitted out of the atmosphere. Phoebe Weston, one of The Guardian's biodiversity reporters, recently went out of the office to report on one of the key methods. I did a road trip around Scotland and I got the train up to Inverness and essentially drove around looking at bogs, rewilding projects, conservation projects... And towards the end of the trip, I was driving down this incredibly long peninsula. It's called the Mull of Kintyre. It's a fairly narrow peninsula, and you're kind of sandwiched between these very tempestuous skies and basically huge, wide oceans. I think on a clear day, you can see Northern Ireland. It's got one really long, winding road going down it. I felt seriously sick by the end of the journey. Once Phoebe had wound her way down the road through oncoming weather fronts and intermittent drizzle, she finally made it to the bottom of the peninsula. I was staying at this hotel of this very eccentric lady and it used to be a maternity ward. And I was flicking through the guest book and um, was looking at why people came. They come for whiskey, golf, tracing their ancestry. And I said to her, that is the longest road I've ever driven down. And she said, ah, it's funny you should say that. It was the inspiration for the Beatles song, Long and Winding Road, which, of course, I immediately Googled. There is no evidence whatsoever that this is the source of the inspiration for that song, but I think it's a great story. Proof you can't take journalists anywhere. But Phoebe wasn't just there for the pub trivia. She was actually visiting a town called Glen Bar to see one particular person. 
and I'm really closely looking for a man waving at me from the side of the road and he's just sort of by this scruffy old gate and he's got a big smile on his face, blue eyes, shaved head, I guess he's in his late 40s and he's with his lovely black Labrador called Ginny. But this unassuming man who Phoebe found standing at the gate with his dog is attempting to do something very impressive, something that the rest of us are unlikely to ever achieve. He essentially wants to die carbon negative. Today, we look at how he's hoping to do that. And we explore the machines being built to try and do the same on a much, much bigger scale. I'm Shivani Dave, and from The Guardian, this is Science Weekly. We were here a couple of years ago uh, in the spring and walking across this field that we're in now, and there were clumps of frog spawn just on the grass in front of us. And clearly there have been kind of ephemeral ponds here and it has been boggy, but it's been drained and it's been used for grazing. Uh, But the frogs are still coming back, kind of going, where's my pond? The man Phoebe went to meet was Professor David Ray, a carbon scientist from the University of Edinburgh. A couple of years ago, David and his wife bought a farm in order to achieve his life's goal to take all of the carbon he and his wife have ever emitted out of the atmosphere and put it back in the ground, something known as carbon sequestration. On this farm, the soil is going to be the greatest store of carbon. The biggest increase is going to be in reforestation over the next probably 100 years while those trees grow. And my big plan before COVID hit was for our field courses to come across, the students to maybe with a bit of enticement of pizza and beer to plant trees <laughs> when they were here as part of it. He's already planted 500 trees and in total he wants to have 50,000 trees on his farm. So that's the main thing he's doing. He's also doing other stuff like re-wetting boggy areas and he's really keen to make his farm good for wildlife as well. Okay, so Dave's doing all these things to the farm to draw down carbon. But how does he know how much carbon he's actually taking out of the atmosphere? So two years ago, Dave had a sabbatical and he took the opportunity to spend six months taking core samples from all over his farm. Essentially, what he's doing is what polar scientists do when they're taking ice samples. They dig down with a tube. His one is 30 centimetres long and he pulls out a sample of soil. And what he does with that sample of soil is measures the amount of carbon that's inside it. Now, he does that at different layers. And the point of this is that in the future, this is going to tell us really important information about how much carbon we can expect the land to take on a much bigger scale. We should be able to achieve, on average, about three tonnes of carbon dioxide per hectare. And we've got 30 hectares of land. So that'll be 90 tonnes a year once it's all planted. And that will be the average over... 50 to 100 years in terms of... According to David, the average person emits about five tonnes of carbon per year. So, yeah, if you live for 100 years, and that's easy maths, that's 500 tonnes. If we took a lifetime carbon footprint of 500 tonnes, then that's going to take about six years yeah. of, of the uptake, and then 12 years for me and my wife. But that, I think that OK, so it's this great romantic story... But as David pointed out, unfortunately, he's found from his calculations that despite sounding promising, this just doesn't scale up. 
I think that was one of the really sobering things for me as a carbon scientist. We got this place and I thought, this is really big. I'm going to be able to sequester loads of carbon here, much bigger than we had planned to get. And actually, when you do the numbers, there's no way you can do this for everyone in Scotland or in the world. There's just not enough land. And this is where a new technology that's just beginning to take shape comes in. In this barren lunar landscape outside Reykjavik lies a cutting-edge experiment to combat climate change. So it's called direct air capture, and the idea is that you use uh, machines to suck the CO2 out of the air, capture it, and then produce a, a pure stream of CO2, which you can then bury or tuck away somewhere um, in order to remove it from the atmosphere. This is Damien Carrington. The Guardian's environment editor, he recently wrote about some of these technologies, including the most well-known of the carbon capture companies so far. There's a plant in Iceland called Climeworks. Can you step us through the technology? So there's lots of different technologies that companies are trying, but Climeworks are perhaps the, the furthest forward. So they've opened what is currently the world's biggest direct air capture plant in Iceland, powered by geothermal renewable energy. And what they do is they use fans to suck in the air and then they've got a a chemical absorbent which uh, selectively uh, absorbs CO2 from the atmosphere. Once that's saturated with carbon dioxide, they then heat it up to about 100 degrees centigrade and that drives off this pure stream of carbon dioxide which they then channel down into the ground, mix it with water and what happens is that over a period of about two years that turns into a carbonate rock which is likely to be there for thousands of years if not longer. Other ventures Damien wrote about were Solitaire Power who are trying to suck carbon emitted by people out of office spaces and Carbon Capture Inc., They're using molecular sieves. But there was one company that really stood out. There's another company called Charm Industrial. You spoke to them and, in your own words, they had an even more striking pitch. What was their focus? That's right. Peter Reinhardt, who's the CEO, uh, said, uh, we put oil back underground, which uh, caught my attention for sure. And what they do is uh, taking a different approach rather than directly sucking CO2 out of the air. They take forestry waste and agricultural waste, which they say wouldn't otherwise be used. And if it was left to its own vices, it would rot and the CO2 would go back into the air. So the plants and the trees have captured this CO2. And what they do is uh, use a process called pyrolysis, which is heating without oxygen. And that turns this biomass into uh, bio oil, which is pretty sludgy and nasty and wouldn't be any use for a vehicle anyway. And then they pipe that back down underground into depleted oil and gas reservoirs. And to me, that feels quite neat because, you know, the fossil fuel industry has spent, uh, you know, the last hundred years piping oil and gas out of these places. Now we're sort of reversing the flow in the pipes. So is it safe to put the carbon back in like this? Could the carbon escape? Uh, It's a good question, actually. But when you think about it, the oil and gas which was trapped in those reservoirs had been there in many cases for tens or hundreds of millions of years. And it wasn't until um, human beings came along and drilled a hole in the cap rock which allowed it to escape. So assuming you've plugged the cap where you got the oil and gas out from, then these reservoirs are really good at containing carbon dioxide. Also, at that depth and uh, temperatures, it'll often turn into a liquid. So I think there are many problems potentially with direct air capture, but actually sticking it back under the ground into depleted oil and reservoirs is one of the smaller risks, I think. 
Now, both Damien and Phoebe were really clear that the biggest and best thing we can do to fight the climate emergency is to cut out fossil fuels and drastically reduce our emissions in the first place. Unfortunately, there are some things which are really hard to decarbonise, like aeroplanes, some industrial processes like cement, agriculture. And so it seems very likely that by the middle of the century, when we have to be at zero emissions, there's still going to be some left over that have to be dealt with. The other problem we have is that at the moment, um, emissions are still rising, despite all the talk and concern and fears that people have. And so it's quite likely that we're going to overshoot the budget that we have for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And again, that leads you to the conclusion that you're going to have to remove it from the atmosphere. Damien, these companies that we've touched on, they all sound like they're doing great work. But how realistic is this as a potential solution in our fight against the climate crisis? So the scale-up required for direct air capture to become something meaningful in terms of tackling the climate crisis is absolutely enormous. I spoke to one scientist called Robert Rode, who's at uh, Berkeley Earth, and he said to me, right now, direct air capture is like trying to bail out the Titanic using an eyedropper. And he was pointing out that uh, the current global capacity for direct air capture is only about 12,000 tonnes of CO2 a year. That might sound like a lot, but when you consider that um, the whole of humanity produces about 3 million times more CO2 every year, about 36 billion tonnes, then you can see the scale of the challenge. To make uh, direct air capture a reality, not only do you need to scale up, but there needs to be some sort of carbon market, otherwise uh, companies aren't going to have a business. There needs to be a price on a tonne of carbon. And that has been talked about for a long time, but certainly doesn't exist right now. But at the uh, COP26 climate change talks, they will be talking about trying to get a market going. Thanks to Damien, Phoebe and David. We're going to keep bringing you more climate and environment stories in the lead up to COP26. If you've got anything you'd like us to cover, do get in touch at scienceweekly@theguardian.com. See you on Thursday. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.